Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to begin tonight by telling a kind of um, uh, a kind of geographical story, okay? This is important, I think, for understanding what the heck is going on with this crazy system of gods that we have in Hesiod's Theogony. Um, and it's got interesting connections, too, with what the Greeks believed about themselves, and we can compare that uh, against what, the Jews, especially the Jews, as they later on became aware of the Greeks, um, what they thought that they were all about, what scripture has to say about uh, these early matters. So there seems to have been um, a large group of people uh, or peoples that um, uh, populated the, the steps of Eurasia, what we would now call, I suppose, the Ukraine, but also going east, far east, past the Ural Mountains into, um, into Asia. They lived on the steppes that was largely treeless, and except for the Urals, uh, not, not too much by way of mountains. They thus had an experience always of the, the sky above, okay? Consider them as having lived in a very, very large Kansas. Okay. Now, these people, they spoke uh, a language that historical linguists have, uh, have, have managed to conjecture from the descendant languages in various subgroups. They spoke a language which is the parent of uh, Latin, the distant parent of Latin, Greek. English, French through Latin, right? Russian, Welsh, and all the Celtic languages, um, Albanian, Armenian, Bengali, Hindu, Punjabi, I believe also Nepalese, Iranian, which is the modern version of ancient Persian, okay? Hittite. Um, see, it's not just not just European, but Indo-European, as they are now called, right? These people migrated in waves 
we guess as to when the migrations occurred according to what happened to their languages. Uh, we have other evidence to some, some of the migrations were uh, late enough to belong to the historical record. Others were prehistorical, right? We're talking, so we're talking about 3000 BC, 2000 BC, 1000 BC, actually continuing. They seem to have been very restless, very active people. Um, they went uh, south and east and settled in India and uh, the areas round about there. They settled in Iran. They were already there. Um, the Persian Empire, they are speaking a language that is distantly related to English. Uh, the ancient Indians, right, in India, the Hindus, speaking Sanskrit, their holy language, that is also related to English. Um, it's also in the big family. Now, uh, and of course, the Germanic group of, of these, what we call the Germanic group, they, they moved west uh, into um, Europe and then, then into Northern Europe, into Scandinavia. Uh, the Celtic branch moved in various places uh, that you may not be aware of this, but um, they, some of them are in what we now call Turkey uh, in the days of St. Paul. Uh, so Galatia is so-called, right, because the Galatians are, they're Celtic people, okay? They're speaking a Celtic uh, Indo-European language. And of course, like all Irishmen, they were stubborn and enthusiastic and they needed to be given what for by St. Paul. Um, but the same people end up in Gaul and Galicia in Spain. And of course, in, uh, in England, um, and uh, you know, their descendants now are, their linguistic descendants speak Welsh or Scottish, Scottish Gaelic. In any case, um, these people seem to have had a religious system that was oriented towards the sky, okay? It was what they saw at the time. They were uh, originally not farmers, okay? Uh, but um, semi-nomadic herders. I'm sure they did a little bit of farming, but not on the big scale that we saw in uh, the Mediterranean world where you had rivers that could be, um, you know, used for irrigation, things like that. They, they, they hadn't developed that, right? So the religious system did not focus on getting living things out of the ground. Um, fertility religions tended to focus on what's going on in the ground for obvious reasons. And uh, people came up with the idea, uh, fertility religions seem to have this family resemblance that if you, if you pour living blood into the ground, even human blood, then the gods of fertility will like that and they will give you a bounteous harvest. So uh, fertility religions tend to involve some human sacrifice. Right. These Indo-Europeans, they don't seem to have had that, right? Because they weren't doing that kind of farming at all. They moved down into what we call Greece. Now, so Greek is a descended language. It comes from their language. But there, of course, were already people living in the peninsula in what we call Greece. It was all thoroughly populated already. Okay, so when these people moved in, 
uh, just people migrate and this happens, right? When peoples migrate, there's going to be war. Um, the uh, newcomers, sometime around 1800 BC, perhaps uh, 1700 BC, they move in. There's distant, vague mem mem cultural memories of this among the Greeks. But the most fascinating thing is the thing that it does to the religious system, which we're going to see in the Theogony, okay? The uh, original peoples, whoever they were, we don't know what language they spoke, except that some words have uh, place names, especially preserved in, uh, in, in, in Greek, or not originally Indo-European. Um, they were uh, conquered, but they were not obliterated. And their religion was conquered, but it was not obliterated. It was, shall we say, made to go underground. Not, not, I don't mean that people practiced it secretly, not that at all. What happens is that these gods that the newcomers worshiped, that they associated with the sky, uh, they um, took over, so to speak, from the gods that were already there that are associated with the earth and with fertility, okay? And this is somehow remembered by the peoples who mingle, of course, right? Somehow remembered by the peoples as a generation of gods that are young taking over from the generations of gods that are old, right? But the gods don't disappear. They are just, some of them are made to go under the earth. Uh, others are given favor, as we see by, by Zeus. But take a look at it, okay? So we have at the beginning here is, you know, just sheer uh, spontaneous fertility, but also kind of mindlessness, right? As, as Hesiod tells it, there was, there's um, earth, there, first there was chaos, Okay, the the uh, antithesis of cosmos. First, there was chaos, and then chaos kind of spontaneously produced a variety of deities. And for in the mind of these prehistoric peoples, there's there's really no difference between the sea, the ocean, and the god of the ocean or the goddess of the ocean. There's the same thing. Okay because everything is full of gods, right? Uh, so it's chaos, not, not cosmos. By the way, uh, just a little clue here on the word cosmos. Um, in the Greek mind, it suggested not just stuff out there in the sky, it suggested that everything in, in existence as an orderly whole, okay? Order, cosmos. Cosmos is related to cosmetic. Um, that is, when you, uh, in ancient Greek, when you cosmetize, uh, you, you're making something look good. You're arranging things so that they will take, they will assume beautiful order. Okay, that's what it means to be a cosmos. But first, there was chaos. There was chaos. Okay, and then that's chaos just sort of spontaneously produced. Notice the difference here between uh, the this 
strange melding of a of an underlying religion with the later Indo-European religion, but the, the first, the initial, it's all darkness and confusion. And then there was Earth. And then Earth, Gaia, Earth begins spontaneously to produce, right? Um, somewhat later on, she mates with heaven, sky, Oronos, okay? And uh, it's natural to think of sky as masculine, earth as feminine for a variety of reasons. The most obvious of which is that the living things come up from the earth as if the whole earth were one great womb right? to be fertilized by the rain, for instance, which comes from the sky, okay? So um, they, to produce these uh, a, a, a second generation of deities, um, they're they're a mix, they're a jumble. Uh, some of them are, you know, actually uh, not bad looking. Others are others are hideous. Okay, um, they 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 include the cyclopses, for instance, with the one big circle eye. That's what it means. Cyclops means a cycle eye, a a, a wheel for an eye in the middle of the forehead. Um, they include the hundred-armed uh, trio, Briareus and Cotus and Jais, right? they were hundred arms and 50 heads. Um, uh, Oranos uh, determines to rule. I mean, there are all these creatures there. He doesn't want to be bothered with them, and so he tries to suppress the younger generation, the, the second generation now of gods, by thrusting them back into the earth. And um, this kind of makes Gaia uncomfortable because, you know, it's, you give birth and now once all these creatures are shoved back in there, it's all tight and constrained, okay? You will notice the point is that Oranos is ruling by force that suppresses. So um, uh, Earth gets together some of her children, and she says, listen, we've got to take vengeance against your spiteful and wicked father. Um, he's the first one who thought of doing wicked things. So I don't feel bad about doing something wicked to him. Because he started it, right? So how different this is from what we have in Genesis. Any, in any case, uh, so she, uh, one, of her, one of her children, Cronus, um, says, okay, mom, I will do that. And the next time that Sky uh, <laughs> comes over Earth, uh, Cronus is ready with a sickle that Gaia herself has formed from materials in the earth, you know, iron sickle. And he uh, goes snicker snack and um, off go the testicles of his father. Now, uh, that means essentially, because rulership here is tied to fertility, that Uranus can no longer be the chief god. Um, the testicles get thrown to the ground, blood comes on the ground, it sprouts up kinds of hideous things. 
throw in the water and eventually the foam from the uh, from the members um, s- develops, springs forth as uh, the goddess Aphrodite, um, uh, the goddess of love. In any case, um, so that that's, so this happens in the s- second generation, and Kronos now is the great ruler of the gods. But that's not enough either, because Kronos doesn't learn from his um, from his father's wickedness. And he too tries to rule by suppression, right? By stupid brute force, okay? The emphasis here is that it's stupid. There's not anything to it. In fact, it's actually kind of ridiculous. Um, He swallows his children whole, right? Uh, Then, the goddess Freya, his wife, goes to Gaia and Uranus, goes to Earth and the sky, right? And they, she says, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Well, they have a plan. It's the first time, really, that, uh, well, I guess maybe hiding Kronos so they can uh, do that operation on, on his father is a spark of intelligence. Uh, we're developing more intelligence here. That They decide... Uh, to hide the next child and substitute a stone in a blanket, um, which Cronus then swallows down. Um, this requires a good deal more planning, you see, and more people have to be in on it. And you have to wait, in fact, for the uh, plan to really come to full flowering because that the baby, the baby has to grow up. Okay, that baby that saved is Zeus. And then when Zeus is grown up, uh, he causes Kronos to vomit back up the uh, uh, brothers and sisters. Now, this is now the third generation of gods, and these are called in Greek drama, the young gods. Okay, they are the Olympian gods. They are the gods on Olympus. Um, they are often, not always, often associated with song, intelligence, light, laughter, dancing, shrewdness, politics. Okay, key thing here. Um, let me show you why. See, Zeus now has his generation, the younger gods. And they are contending for the mastery over the whole system of gods, over the whole universe, right? And um, Zeus alone cannot accomplish this, okay? In fact, Zeus, in concert with his brother and sister gods of that generation, alone still cannot accomplish this. Because the Titans, that second generation, they're very strong. And so Zeus does something. Now, for the Greeks, this is is central to who they are as a people. Okay? What Zeus does here, he forges a political alliance. All right? 
Does this seem to come? I mean, we're talking about if you're talking about Genesis and Exodus, uh, come to from a like completely different universe, right? This is this is Zeus, who more resembles a Napoleon or a crime boss than uh, the god of all the universe. He is not the creator. Okay, he's not the first. He is the first, he's not the first in time, but he is the first because he's first in power. But he's only first in power because through his shrewdness, which includes political alliances, he has established himself on the throne of Olympus. He's gathered all authority to himself by political alliances which throughout Greek drama, he continues to have to make. He cannot do as he pleases, okay? So the political alliance is an interesting one. Instead of, uh, instead of attempting to uh, suppress, uh, thrust under the earth, the entire generation of Titans, Zeus says to some key members of that group, come on and join me. I give you a really good deal. I'll give you a better deal than you're getting with them. One hand washes the other. And if it's you, Briarius, one hand washes a hundred of yours, okay? <laughs> I mean, I got to wash a hundred of your hands. You just got to wash two of mine. But uh, please, you know, come on. And, and your two fellows over there, Carter Strice, come on and join me. I'll give you great digs. You guys are stuck on the earth. You get to be on Olympus. You drink ambrosia. I tell you, you never had anything like it. <laughs> and they say, Zeus, you got a deal. And likewise, he enlists the allegiance of Hecate, the underworld goddess, and of the Styx, the river Styx. Uh, you join me. And I tell you what I do for you. I'll make the gods swear an oath by you, the most fearful oath that the gods can swear. They would dare not break this oath. You'll be honored by me. You're just another river with them, but you'll be honored by me. And the stick says, Zeus, you got it. Right? And in fact, uh, the three grotesque creatures, Cotus and Briarius and Chais, with their 50 heads and 100 arms, they are pretty formidable in battle. And uh, it is clear that Zeus wins the battle, wins the war, uh, with their aid as central to, to, um, to the victory, okay? Yet the old ways are still there. Gods are not killed they're subordinated okay some they go under the ground they were always associated in some ways with the ground anyhow and it's the gods that use their brains uh especially their political brains their strategic brains that rule and they are associated with mountaintops light political order, okay? 
doesn't mean that Zeus is good. Sometimes he is, sometimes he's not, okay? In fact, Zeus seems about to make the same mistake that Cronus made. Uh, Zeus originally does not want the human beings, and it's not clear and easy where the heck they came from. They just sort of develop. Um, one of the Titans, Prometheus, is kindly disposed towards human beings, and he is a trickster, and Zeus doesn't particularly care for him, um, brings the human beings fire in a fennel stalk. Uh, the human beings then, man, develops all kinds of crafts and arts. He no longer has to live hand to mouth like a beast. This angers Zeus, and he, uh, for that, he, uh, chains Prometheus to the base of a mountain in the Caucasus and a bird of prey, a vulture or an eagle, um, eats at his liver, devouring it once a day for years and years and years and years. All right. However, uh, Zeus dare not kill Prometheus. I hope you're following all this. this any, anybody who ever says, anybody who ever says, oh, you know, the Old Testament is just a whole lot of myth like uh, all the other myths. You want a myth? I'll show you a myth, okay? This is mythology. That in just something else entirely. It's very different. Different in kind. Anyway, Prometheus has a secret. Someone of the new generation of gods will beget a son who is greater than his father. Someone is going to do that. Someone is going to do that. Prometheus knows who. Okay. Prometheus not telling. Now, Zeus has been very careful to make sure that none of his offspring greater than he is. That is why uh, Athena, the wise, the shrewd goddess Athena, the goddess of, of wisdom, of strategy, is born from uh, the side of Zeus's head. Uh, Zeus makes sure that she comes from him directly so that she will always favor her father. And she always does. Um, so now the, the, the Zeus has this loose end still with Prometheus because if Zeus begets a son who is greater than his father, um, or this one of the goddesses will bear a son who is greater than his father. If Zeus, if that happens to Zeus, then Zeus is gone. He, he needs to know, and he tries to force Prometheus to tell by punishing. In other words, we're going to revert back to uh, not using your brains, but using sheer might. And um, it doesn't work to finally Zeus relents, not because he has a change of heart, not because he's sorry. There's no moral relenting here. It's a strategic relenting. Zeus relents, Prometheus is unbound, and Prometheus says that sea goddess Thetis, she's the one. She's the one who is going to uh, bear a son greater than his father, and Zeus is, that was a close call, because one of the ways Zeus um, establishes his right to rule, the, the sign of his greatness, is that uh, uh, he's prolific. I mean, he 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 
he mates with everything walking on two legs um, that's female. And whenever one of the gods uh, has uh, relations with um, a human being, it's always fertile, all right? It, it always results in child. So Zeus has got these offspring all over the place and he was about to, um, to uh, uh, mate with goddess Thetis. And just in time, he finds out, oh, she's the one. And the, he gets her married off uh, to a man named Peleus. And um, the marriage there between Peleus and Thetis produces uh, a man greater than Peleus. His name is Achilles, right? And at the big wedding feast that all the gods were invited to, except for the goddess of strife, you don't want to invite strife to your wedding. Uh, she got her, the, the big wedding feast, right? All the gods are happy because now they know we're not going to have an, a, a, a huge great war among all the gods, right? That's been avoided. Uh, they're all celebrating goddess of strife. She wasn't invited. So she says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess things up for them. Uh, she fashions a golden apple with the tag for the most beautiful, for the fairest. And she tosses it in. And uh, Hera, Zeus's wife, says, that apple's for me. And Athena says, no, no, that apple's mine. And Aphrodite says, girls, come on, that's for me. And the three strive over this in total um, competition. The Greeks are all about competition, right? You can beat for everything. So uh, they decide to find an impartial judge, and they find one in a shepherd lad uh, who is tending his sheep uh, at the base of Mount Ida um, near a city called Troy. He's one of the 50 sons of Priam, the king of Troy. His name is Paris. And um, uh, this, this being a, a, a mythology that prizes shrewdness and calculation more than honesty, um, they, they, of course the goddess is going to try to bribe him. Uh, Hera, the chief goddess, the consort of Zeus, says, son, if you give me that apple, I will give you power. And Athena says, sonny boy, uh, if you give me that apple, I'll make you wise and shrewd, like my father Zeus. And Aphrodite, smiling to herself, no doubt, says, I've won this one. Boy, have I won this one. Kid, come here. You give it to me, I give you the most beautiful woman in the world to marry. And the boy says, girl, it's yours. But of course, the most beautiful woman in the world was already married. Her name was Helen. And she's married to Menelaus, the king of Sparta. And Paris says, oh, well, I guess I'm going to be making a trip to Sparta. And thus we get the whole Trojan War. Okay. Now, uh, how many ways, how many are the ways in which uh, this, this whole mythical system is productive of uh, philosophy? Okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of made to order because uh, you, you are constantly faced with contrasts and 
uh, seemingly irreconcilable ideals, right? Uh, you want to be just, but if you're completely just, will you be taken advantage of by everybody? That's a problem. Plato addresses that problem. There's Aphrodite. She's totally beautiful, but she's unscrupulous at the same time. Um, you are going to desire this beauty, but won't that lead you into big trouble? That's a problem, okay? Um, Zeus is the most powerful among the gods, but his power is, he is not omnipotent. Uh, therefore, he must rely upon making sure that all the subordinate gods fall into line. How does he do that? Okay. Um, you see, all of this is oriented towards the kind of way of life that the Greeks were developing when Hesiod himself was alive and when Homer was alive. It was called the polis. Um, Olympus is a polis. Think of it that way. It's that thing that the Greeks invented. City doesn't quite get to it. It's, you've got this reasonably, well, it's kind of rather smallish area of people closely related by kinship ties. Some of them live in city proper, some of them live in the countryside or on the seacoast, uh, but they all belong together and they come together regularly to decide on important matters for the common good. And they have law, right? And they believe that unless you, as a human being, live in a place like this where you have, you get to argue about what's the right course for your people to take, along with other people are, right? Unless you have that, you're not fully human, you're a barbarian. You may be rich, you may be smart, you may have great, great palaces and all this. Uh, doesn't mean that you're stupid, you may be very smart, you may be Persian, high culture, very high civilization, Persian, but you're barbarians because you don't get to live in this way that we have. They consider it the best way to live, all right? And I have said a whole bunch about Greeks and their peculiar overlay of one religious system on top of an older religious system, and it all gets mingled together and it's understood as a younger generation of gods conquering uh, uh, and then controlling the older generation of gods, right? But it's also tied in with new way of doing things which involves reason and persuasion, argument, getting together in a council, right? Rather than the threats of force, okay? Whether they're exerted by a thug against somebody just manning his own business or by some kind of emperor and his bureaucracy that order you around, tell you what to do, right? And you have no say in it. Um, so it's Greece as opposed to the very high civilization in Persia and the very high civilization in Egypt. And the Greeks learn from them constantly, constantly. But they said, we don't want to live like that. We'll learn from them, but we don't want to live that way. We're going to live our way. When the Jews meet this, it does seem at first that you can't find people more different than the Greeks and the Jews, right? Um, 
in uh, Jewish scripture, we never see. Uh, we, we, we might see good prophet and bad prophet advising a king, right? Or uh, decent, honorable counselor to the king versus unscrupulous and selfish counselor to the king. That's all we get. We never get a meeting of the ancient Hebrews together to argue about a course of action in a kind of council um, where everybody's got some say and some, you know, you come up with some kind of decent compromise that we don't get at all. Okay. Um, it, uh, uh, it's not there. It's not there in Genesis, right? Um, it's not there. I, I take a look at, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going here to that great Psalm uh, 119. Um, I think I mentioned this last time, right? So uh, the psalmist, the psalmist in every single verse uses a word like law or your, your um, uh, decrees, your statutes, your word, okay, um, your judgments, uh, um, your commandments, your ordinances, right? They're all gods, not an emperor, okay? So it's not Babylon, but also not what a political system has come up with either. It's not Olympus. It's not Zeus. It's not Athens. For instance, um, I'm, I'm not sure if I read this particular passage, but uh, maybe I did. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Or... Um, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word. And so on. I hope you guys have a lot of questions here. I, let me show you a couple of things. I've got like 20 minutes left here. Um, just a couple of things maybe will spur some, uh, some discussion later on. Um, uh, somewhat at random, you will notice... In Genesis, I, 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 I mean, the first time I read Genesis, I was four years old. Uh, I didn't understand half of it. Um, I, I, I decided I was going to read my mother's Bible. I got into Leviticus, and there I got bogged down. Um, and I asked my mother what a certain word meant, and she, it, it had to do with something that no four-year-old boy is going to understand. Um, about the human body. And my mother said, uh, I don't know what that means. And so I bogged down. Anyway, um, you may you may wonder, what are all the big cats doing? For instance, in chapter five of Genesis, um, Adam lived 130 years, begat a son in his own likeness after his image, called his name Seth. Uh, Seth lived 105 years, begat Enos. Enos uh, begat sons and daughters. Enoch begat Kainan. Kainan lived 70 years and begat Mahalael. 
etc. Right, so and so begot, 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 begot. Right, the regular genealogy. The theogony is literally the genealogy of gods. And you noticed, I'm sure, that there was that Hesiod, between the wonderful stories that he tells, is uh, interested in making sure that you know of the genesis of all these gods and goddesses all over the place, as you can name, right? And, you know, Zeus um, begat the nine muses, etc. And uh, it's just like a big branching family tree. It's all divinities. And then demigods. There's nothing of that in here. Instead, what we've got are genealogies of human beings. Okay, they take us from prehistoric times into historic times. Uh, with um, when we finally get into Egypt, we're in historic times. That is, we've got now written records. Uh, there's that's really quite foreign um, to uh, anything that you see um, in uh, in in works and days. Uh, the, there's not a chaos at the beginning. We have, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. And I told you last time that um, the word that's used for let there be light, let there be yehi. Yehi means let there be yehi. Yehi or, yehi or, is a form of the same verb that is at the base of the very name of God, the holy name of God. You cannot utter. You're not allowed to utter I did something stupid once. Uh, I, I was learning Hebrew for the first time, and I was with a friend of mine uh, uh, at Providence College who's an observant Jew. And I said, I, we're having lunch, and I said in my napkin, hey, Raphael, look what I can do. And I started to write the, the name of God on my napkin. And he said, Tony, don't do that. Please don't do that. I said, well, why not? And I did. He says, now, you know what you just did? Now I have to take your napkin and bring it home and put it in a special drawer because that's the name of that's the holy name of God on it. I, you, I, you, you just caused me trouble. Anyway, um, that name uh, that name from the verb to be then shows up in a big way. Uh, uh, in uh, in Exodus, right? I, mean, I believe I had that also for you to take a look at by comparison, right? So this is ex famous Exodus chapter three, and uh, uh, we're we're in historic times now. Um, we're in this second half of the uh, second millennium BC. Um, after, during the reign of Ramses II, and he's a historical figure, uh, after an intermediary period where Egypt was governed by non-Egyptian peoples who may have been more friendly to the Jews, to the Hebrews, than the Egyptians were, um, it is possible that these people who ruled in the interregnum uh, who were non-Egyptian ruling Egypt, it is possible that they were Hittites. Uh, they did not, then they did not speak a Semitic language. They, if they were Hittites or related to Hittites, 
they'd have spoken an Indo-European language. Maybe, maybe that's why um, Joseph, you know, partly the explanation there, why they were in favor. And then when the Egyptians, properly speaking, took back control of their nation, they said, <laughs> you Hebrews, uh, now you're going to pay. Okay, the Hyksos, that's right. Um, so anyway, uh, there's, a, there's a, a burning bush while Moses is out tending sheep. And um, th there's nothing peculiar about any of this scene except for the fact that the bush is on fire and it's not being consumed. Brush fires, that's not a big deal. But that it should be on fire but not consumed, that's odd. Now, it's not a great forest. It's just a bush. Otherwise, everything in this scene seems to be normal, right? Um, and Moses goes up to him. And that's when God calls out to him, says, um, put your shoes from off your feet. The place where you standing is holy ground. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and heard the cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good land, and a large land flowing with milk and honey, under the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites. I don't know that they are the same peoples there. And the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and Jebusites. Um, Come now, therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayst bring forth my people, children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, this event here, which is the, the crucial event in, in the history of the Jews, right here, right? Uh, this is, there's no cyclops, there's no monsters, there's no, no, no anything, there's um, the elements are not speaking. There is no tree goddess or stream goddess or something like that. There's, there is only uh, a somewhat ordinary person, though possibly very, very intelligent, educated as an Egyptian. His name is Egyptian. Um, it's a Semitic language. It's related to Hebrew, but it's, his name is not a Hebrew name. Moses is not a Hebrew name. Egyptian name. Um, and God appeals to him and, and, and says, I am. Uh, the, the verb there for, for be is not there. Okay, so it's I, it's just assumed, am here. The God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is, um, I, I am a God that is intimately involved in the history of your people. In fact, as we is the revelation opens out to us the god intimately involved in the history of all human all human beings okay um this is not a god who is on a particular mountain um a god who favors some people for whatever reason doesn't favor others so, uh, God can be kind of here, there, everywhere, sometimes not noticing things because he's paying more attention to something else for the moment. And this is, it, and it's also not, a, not God as conceived far in some imaginary world 
in some very distant past. It's God of your particular ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the first way he names himself. The second way that he names himself is utterly transcendent. Um, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses says, what name shall I give? They are going to ask me, what's the name of this God? Now, naming is the first godlike action that we hear of, that human beings um, uh, perform in, in Scripture, right? Um, Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. And the first thing that God has Adam do is not tend the ground, okay, but name the beasts, and then he names Eve, too. And Eve names her children, right? To, to, to name something is to have an intellectual grasp of it, um, to, to get at its essence by putting a name to it. Um, well, the name of God has to be a name beyond all names. Zeus is not a name beyond all names. Um, all the names of gods in the Greek mind, they have etymologies, so to speak. They're named that, and they got a variety of names, but they named that for some reason, okay? Um, Zeus, the, the name Zeus uh, is uh, Indo-European, and it uh, means bright and shining. It's associated with the sky, okay? It is uh, related to Latin Deus. It's related to Germanic Tiu, the sky god of the ancient Germans, whose name is preserved for us in our word Tuesday, of all things. Tuesday, Zeus and Deus are all cousins, etymologically anyway. Uh, and uh, God said, I am that I am. Thou shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, has sent me unto you. Ho'on, as it's translated in the Greek Septuagint, the being, the being uh, sent me to you. Being sent me to you. Okay. Um, you could not predicate that of any of the Greek gods. We see they have their uh, they have their beginnings, right? In the beginning, says Hesiod, there was chaos. Then there was Oronos and Gaia, heaven and earth, right? Sky and earth. Uh, and then there was these others, and then there were these others. There's a beginning to all of them. And they all have names, and the names capture perhaps some of their peculiar personality or the peculiar things that they're associated with. They're all bounded by their names, right? And Zeus is, of course, bounded by the fact that he's a politician um, who governs by means of strategy and power, united, right? God doesn't have to govern that. God is, right? I mean, this is the great 
revelation. You wonder, how the heck could he, the, the Hebrews conceive of this? Where do these people, the Hebrews, give any evidence of um, profound theological thought before the revelation that's given to them? This seems to come out of nowhere. Of course, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from God. But in a human sense, it sure seems to come out of nowhere. And there's nothing like it. Uh, there's nothing like it in India, nothing like it in uh, any of the systems of the gods that spread from that Indo-European core as they went here, there, and everywhere. Sometimes the, the system, the form that the, goddess, the, that the gods' systems took depended upon the geography of where you went. So if you went, if you went where it was kind of dark and cold uh, a, a lot of time of the year, you're your, your religious system might be a little gloomier. Um, uh, uh, if you went to sunny places like Greece, it'd be sunnier. Um, maybe it was the sunniest in Greece. And that, that's as good as human beings are going to get when it comes to sunny views of the gods. And he's it's theogony, and yet half of them are bloodthirsty and, um, and so forth. Okay. Um, God does not deliberate in our text. He, he doesn't ever say, gee, now what am I going to do? Right. Not really. Uh, he doesn't take advice. Um, he doesn't have beginning. He doesn't have to use anything in his creation. Uh, and he's, it's, it, he's not sort of decorated by this phantasmagoria of uh, mythological imaginations. In fact, it's, I have often said, I may have mentioned it to you too, that it says there's as little pictorial quality and anthropomorphic quality as being the shape of a human being, imagined as in the shape of a human being. There's as little about of that uh, with reference to God in the Old Testament as is possible for people if they're gonna say anything at all about God in poetic form. Um, you never have God glancing one way and so he misses something that happens over there. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's a phenomenal thing. Well, let, let's, I see the amount of time here um, anyway, let's take five. You guys come back with questions. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, wow, wonderful job. I'll hand it over to Becky for our first one. Go ahead, Becky. Dr. Esselin, as we are looking um, through this myth and looking at the different ages and generations that we see, what type of society are they modeling for us? A society of ascent, decline, a society cyclical in nature. What can we glean from them? Well, you know, the funny thing is that the Greeks uh, did believe, uh, seem to have believed in cycles, right? Um, we see that in Plato's Republic. You, you start with tyranny, uh, you, you move to aristocracy, then to uh, uh, some kind of uh, democratic society, and that leads to tyranny all over again. Um, and yet, it doesn't appear from their uh, religious system that 
this is them going anywhere, okay? Um, it uh, seems to be uh, sort of in place, right? Uh, it's, it's not aimed towards anything like uh, eternal life, uh, uh, the consummation of the world in, uh, in some great eschatological event. It, it's just the way things are and the way evidently things are going to continue to be, all right? As long as the earth exists, this is the way things are. Um, and Zeus, it, although Zeus needs constantly to be uh, shrewd, to be careful, um, there's no sense among the Greeks that any of that that Zeus is going anywhere, um, right? This is how this is how it came to be the way it is now, and this is pretty much the way it's going to stay. Uh, although human affairs have their cycles, this is. This went through its stages, and it's it is what it is. That's uh, fascinating. It, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I was aware of the cyclical idea of society, but that that static nature of the gods is is yeah, really yeah. It's well, it's evolved sort of. I mean, we see, you know, the glimmerings of intelligence in the second generation of gods. And then the full flourishing of intelligence in the in the new and the young gods. Now later on, of course, now the Greeks would. Uh, I, 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 you know, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say that it is what it is, it, because in a certain sense, um, the Greeks by the time of Plato uh, are already beginning to question what the heck is this that we've inherited. This, this system of gods. And um, they are, some of them are deeply troubled by it, right? Uh, the gods seem sometimes to be uh, unjust. Uh, what do you do when the older gods, the Furies, are uh, pursuing Orestes, who has killed his mother because she killed her his father? And her, her husband, his father. Um, what do you do uh, when Apollo has goaded Orestes on to that act of vengeance, saying that it's just? And the Furies are now attacking him and making him quite mad and miserable because he killed his mother. Uh, how do you how do you bring together these conflicting things? Um, some of the uh, Greek dramatists believed that they could be could be reconciled. Aeschylus did, but others are moving in the direction of saying um, there are there are there's a lot of untruth in uh, and injustice in what we've inherited from the past. So maybe the next development of the Greek religion um, would be a purging of mythology. Uh, Plato seems to point in that direction. Um, That's the next man, the big next manifestation of Greek religion will be Greek philosophy, Greek drama, and then Greek philosophy. Um, and it's that stew of things that the Hebrews encounter when they are driven out of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Some of them end up in Babylon, some of them end up 
uh, in other places in the, in the Near East. And, and then when Alexander comes in and takes over the shooting match and leaves it to his uh, main generals, uh, Alexander, the pupil of Aristotle, his pupil of Plato, um, then, Greek, then, then Greeks and Jews, but Greeks who are somewhat uneasy about their mythological system, the best of the Greeks, uh, and the Jews who are by no means uneasy about their religious beliefs, but are uneasy about the fact that they may not be in Jerusalem. Now, uh, um, these uh, people meet for the first time. That's an amazing uh, civilization over there. Uh, but right. uh, oh, uh, Pope Benedict has talked a great deal about that. So he's the go-to guy for the um, for the meeting of the Hebrew and the Heli, the Greek. Excellent. Uh, Ray, go ahead and jump in here. I have a question about last week. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. So you get you gave us three points, and, and I'm not going to repeat them all, but generally it had to do with the myth of civilization. So this, the focus of my question is that, were, were they aware of, were they self-aware enough to know these things that, you know, that, that they wrote this epic about the city, about civilization? That's my first first half of the question is, well, let me let me take that right, right here first. That's a fascinating thing. I, I will say, I, I'm going to fudge and say somewhat. Um, they couldn't have been entirely unaware, right? Because they knew what was around them, right? I mean, if you uh, have something like Uruk in Babylon, you have other cities, but otherwise, you've got miles and miles and miles of area where there's no cities at all, okay? But villages, hamlets, and so forth. Um, but no great big walled things called cities. You're going to be aware, I mean, this is, this is something, okay? This is different. Uh, so I think they were semi-aware, and it came through in, in, their, in their mythology. Go ahead. You have a second part of the question. But the other half is then then who they so literacy is non-existent in that time frame, essentially. Who did they write it for themselves for you to give us this wonderful class, you know, three thousand years later? I it's I, I I was trying to fathom that all last week. Who are they writing? Well, you to? know, when you have but let's see if we can put these things together, okay? So in order to have a city, right, um, you uh, think of these things practically. You have a city because you uh, have a surplus of dry, storable food, okay, um, namely grain. Uh, that enables you uh, then, because if you have a bumper crop of this, that enables you to release a great portion of your population to do other things besides gathering and preparing food um, so that they can become stonemasons, soldiers, etc., and priests. Um, it, it opens the door for, um, uh, for literacy. In fact, it almost requires literacy because let's say that you are, you are in uh, one of the cities on the Euphrates River. And you need to make sure that the river is draining properly 
because as I said before, there's very, very little slope in the last several hundred miles of these two rivers. So you have to have some pretty good engineering, okay? Uh, you also have to make sure that things far downstream or upstream are right. But you can't talk to the people there, right? We have no telephones. You have to give them instructions. Of course, you can relay them by courier. That's not going to be entirely reliable. You have to develop some system of getting word to this place, this place, this place, this place, this place, okay? To make sure that all these actions are coordinated. Um, there's more. Uh, your, um, your granaries being full um, and not everybody in the uh, business of providing food um, you've got to have some means of exchange, right? So somebody, somebody who doesn't do anything with food at all, but um, a carpenter, okay? So carpenter is, is working for uh, the royal court or working for a fairly well-to-do man. Uh, he's got to be remunerated. Um, well, how is that going to happen? Uh, you can't just say, okay, fellow, let's just go to the granary and we'll dump out a pile of food. That's not convenient. Uh, it may not in some it, it may not be feasible. So you have to have currency. And as soon as you have currency, you have to have some way of keeping track of who got paid what. You have to have writing. Okay. You have to have some way of keeping records. As soon as you have that complex form of society that we call a city, you have to have ways of getting instructions, reliable instructions to people far away uh, in various places simultaneously. And you've got to have records to, to keep track of who's paid what. And of course, everybody's got to contribute something towards the building and the maintaining of the city. That means taxes. And again, you have to have records. So, um, so the priestly class is also the clerkly class, the clerical class, and um, they were they were going to be the record keepers. Um, they were in charge of the temple, which meant also in charge of the granaries. Um, they, yeah, you had to have that, and that too is part of what they find so glorious about themselves. They know. They know perfectly well that there are peoples round about them who don't have that, but they do. And not only do they have it for things like, uh, you know, okay, so such and such got a couple of shekels of silver for the work that he did on somebody's rafters. They have it for the great things about themselves, which they write, they inscribe upon their own city wall. That's the case in Gilgamesh's route, right? So even if people, even if people uh, in a place like Uruk or or uh, Babylon, even if they, if even if the individual does not know how to read, okay, the individual is around writing a lot, okay, and he's got a sense that this is this is special, okay. Um, I, all that said, I think we probably underestimate the degree to which uh, people would learn how to read, especially the Jew. 
because they've got a reason to read that uh, doesn't apply to most other people. I mean, they, they've got the law given by God himself. Also, we mustn't underestimate the uh, ability of people um, to commit to memory thousands and thousands of lines of poetry. If the writing is in poetic form, then people can have it without ever being able to decipher the squiggles on a stone, right? To say, Dr. Russell, nobody can memorize thousands of lines of poetry. I did. Um, one summer I decided I would memorize Paradise Lost. I got a few hundred lines into book five and then school started again, I had to set it down. But uh, I'm going into you know semi-retirement. I'm gonna pick it up again. I'm gonna memorize Paradise Lost because my graduate school professor's neighbor, the professor grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan. Uh, he lived with his grandfather. His grandfather's neighbor used to recite Paradise Lost to himself while he was plowing the fields. So I said, if a farmer in Saskatchewan can do it, I can do it. Well, of course you can do it. Uh, musicians, musicians do the equivalent, uh, right? So anyway, I, I, um, that's, that's how I... How, how, how I'd answer that, that one there. It is part of the glory of who we are. Guess what? Did we get these squiggles on these walls? They mean things. Uh, but you have to have them if you're going to have a city. Thank you so much, Dr. Esselin. Um, Pia writes into us asking what word for love in the original language um, Hesiod uses in the myth. Oh, uh, well, it's various Typically, I do not have the Greek text in front of me. I, I had about 30 minutes before, you know, because we the Internet's down on our island. The typical word for love in Hesiod's forms of the word eros. Okay, uh, We're not talking about agape. Um, it's eros. It's desire. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, that uh, That's the word. Doctor, so another question coming in here, um, uh, related to the writing, I suppose. How, how in the world does such a complex genealogy arise and stay consistent, or it could be consistently adopted? Um, did Hesiod set the standard uh, by gathering disparate myths into a coherent narrative? I don't think so. I think, well, he, he does gather them into a coherent narrative, right? But he, I, I think he's inheriting... Uh, various traditions. Now, may favor some traditions over others, right? Because sometimes you'll find that uh, that uh, these people over here say that this certain god was the son of uh, those two, but these people over here say no, it was these other two, right? There are going to be discrepancies. Um, Hesiod, no doubt, has had to choose, but he didn't choose thinking he was being creative about it. He says that the muses taught him. And uh, the muses are goddesses of memory, um, right? Uh, so was it Hesiod, um, like Homer, who is his rough contemporary, um, is putting into poetic form traditions that are hundreds of years old, um, that uh, he, he has inherited. And of course, one of the way that you one of the ways that you keep all these genealogies straight is that you get a poet like Hesiod who says, uh, "I'm going to sing them." Um, but he probably was not the first. 
to sing parts of these genealogies. Uh, I doubt very much that this was just sprung from his head. Homer himself is inheriting traditions from long past. After all, the, the destruction of Troy happened about four or 500 years before the person we call Homer ever lived. Um, and so people used to think, people used to think, well, there was no Troy, it was all invented. Um, no, I mean, the ruins of Troy have been found, right? Roman Schliemann found them. It, it existed. Uh, probably what we've got is some kind of war between uh, the Mycenaeans, who were Indo-European, uh, uh, and uh, they were mercantile, but they were also pirates. And um, they went on a marauding spree and conquered this rich city in Asia Minor, Troy, uh, not Indo-European, um, not Greek-speaking. And um, it's remembered as having had to do with a woman and uh, that took uh, 10 years. And, and, and the Trojans in the story speak Greek and they behave like Greeks over there, but uh, I'm sure that they didn't. Um, but it's remembered as kind of all sort of Greek. We have time for just one more question tonight, Dr. Esselin, as we wrap okay. up. Uh, Robert writes into us, um, can we infer that apart from Genesis, these mythologies are a conceptual conceptualization, a reflection, a codification of each culture's dynamics of existence, yielding a conscious understanding that then feeds back into each society? Yeah, I think so. It's, it, that Okay, so... Um, Everywhere you go in the world, it seems that people have um, have uh, unconsciously or semi-consciously taken their way of life and um, there's the structure of their existence, right? Whether it's tribal or uh, based on nomadic peoples, sometimes semi-permanent, you know, uh, building up villages, staying in there for a couple of generations and moving on. Whatever is the system they projected back upon their gods. But the Hebrews, they don't do that. They're forbidden to do that. They're forbidden to do anything like that. Uh, you might find little, little stray traces of something, a little bit here and there, but it, it's not really there. Um, the Hebrew understanding is... Uh, there is nothing that we can do um, as a people that will reflect the glory of God except to worship God as he has told us to worship him, right? So the Greeks, you are being like the gods when you have Athens because Athens is like Olympus. Um, it's... He himself says that the muses favor a political man um, that is, the muses give him sweet talk so that he, in the middle of a controversy, can go among the people and use sweet words to persuade them to a course of action. And this is a gift of the muses to what we would call statesmen. They can do this. 
Solomon doesn't ask God for the gift of sweet talk. Um, David's sweet talk was simply to write psalms in praise of God, some of them uh, penitential psalms in which he portrays himself as, you know, in, in iniquity was I begotten, in sin did my mother bear me, you know, things like that. Um, it's, it's so different that, you can't, I mean, uh, when people, again, when people say, oh, you know, it's mythology, it's all the same, so you just take a look. You don't even have to read all that closely. So you, you read uh, the Enuma Elish or the uh, Gilgamesh, you read Hesiod's works and days of theogony, and then you read uh, Exodus. And uh, it's different universe. Uh, they will say, well, you know, there's the, there are the miracles of God. Well, first of all, God is God and can do as he pleases. And second, it's still nothing like uh, what you've got in the other uh, in, in the mythologies, right? Oh, you should have the only thing that people say was mythological is God performing miracles. But don't beg the question. I mean, it's God. He can perform miracles. Though he does seem to perform them only for very clear purposes at certain times. And by the way, you can conceive of the miracles uh, that Moses performed that well, God performed through Moses in uh, putting Pharaoh down as uh, terrible and um, uh, <laughs> put down of the entire system of Egyptian religion and Egyptian society. Um, the river that everything depends on turned to blood, right? It's an agricultural society and so you get pestilence, you get boils, you get locusts, you get flies. The people uh, of, of Egypt uh, prided themselves on their bodily uh, beauty. You know, they're the people who preserve bodies. You know, they, they invent makeup. So you get boils, right? Um, they live in this remarkably sunny land, so you get the night of complete darkness. And then, of course... A stab right at the heart of all fertility religions, religions death of the firstborn. Um, my favorite, though, is the boils. The Egyptians invent makeup. They use antimony, right? Known to the ancients, the element antimony, stibnite, um, eyeshadow and things like that. Everything's pretty. So we'll just, we get to play boils. Um, <laughs> you're all laughing. Mara knows what boils are. Uh, some a lot of my students don't know what oils are. I said, "Well, yeah, you're better off that you don't know." Oh, Doctor, would you would you mind closing us in prayer before you leave this evening? I'll take one of the psalms. Okay, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Psalm eighty-four: How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The sparrow found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord, are posts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they shall still be praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. Who passing through the valley of Baca maketh a well, 
The rain also filled the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thy anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will ye withhold, withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. God bless you all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.